Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can hear from this psalm of Moses. Uh, We thank you for the way that your spirit has worked through writers to bring us to an understanding of you, an understanding of ourselves, and it points us to trust in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you'll deepen our trust today and that you'll help us to live in the light of the reality that your word presents to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of, the, uh, one of the things that I've been asked a little bit over the last couple of months, it's a very um, confronting, kind of abrupt sort of question, is what's the prognosis? Uh, maybe you've spoken with someone who's had cancer before and uh, that's a language that we tend to use. You know, you get a diagnosis, cancer, you get a prognosis. Uh, what's the outcome? And by that, people often mean, so how long have you got to live? In fact, there was one lady who was, uh, well, she was pretty blunt, really. She just asked me outright, so how long are you going to live? And I thought, well, I don't know the answer to that. Last time they told me 10 to 13 months. Uh, That was uh, nearly eight years ago, so that didn't work, did it? Uh, This time, I I don't know. Um, But I do know one thing, um, and that is, Uh, It's not true to say that I've got a terminal illness uh, a second time round because it's really a third time. Uh, Because I've had a terminal illness for longer than I've had cancer. And I've got the same terminal illness that you've got. Did you know that? It's called life. Uh, What's your prognosis? Well, the prognosis is you're going to live a certain number of years and then you're going to die. Uh, it's a pretty accurate prognosis. Uh, it's something that uh, is well attested. In fact, the death rate in Australia is neither going up nor going down. Uh, it's still exactly the same percent that it was uh, when we were first settled. That is 100%. Uh, but the thing is, we, we don't often think about it. Uh, those of us who are young, those of us who are fit, you know, like myself, uh, hey, I like to think so, all right? Uh, we, we, we tend to kind of think we're going to go on for a long, long time, even forever. We think that we've got kind of all the time in the world that we need to do the things that we want to do. And uh, maybe you've heard about it, but there's this thing that some people experience called a midlife crisis. Uh, it's a good thing to experience. I'll, let me explain why in a minute. But I, I think the idea of a midlife crisis is uh, you kind of expect you're going to live for a certain length of time and, and then... When you uh, get a birthday card one year and the birthday number is higher than the amount of years that you can reasonably expect to live for and you realise that you've done less than half the things that you hope to do and you're more uh, active in the first half and more capable in the first half than you will be in the second half, you kind of think, well, what's the point? So you have a midlife crisis. Um, I want to say, I think it's a good thing to have a midlife crisis. Uh, and if you haven't had one yet, it's not because you're not old enough, because I don't think you're ever too young to have a midlife crisis if it causes you to realise the reality that you're not going to live forever. Now, this psalm, this psalm of Moses, uh, is actually a really important psalm for helping us to just get some perspective on life. Um, let, let's keep it open. If you've got your Bibles there, I'd encourage you to, to look along with me at this psalm. 
In verses 1 to 3, we're reminded of the fundamental difference that there is between God and us. So, Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. See the contrast there? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From dust to dust, you are mortals. See, there's only one immortal. There's only one who is there from everlasting to everlasting. There's only one who has all the time in the world to do everything that he wants to do, and that is God. For you and for me, our days are numbered. For you and for me, we're, we're merely mortal. And I tell you, there's nothing like getting a cancer diagnosis to be reminded of your mortality. But that mortality doesn't come with the cancer diagnosis. It comes with being human. You see, what I'm saying is not something that you even need to read the Bible to know to be true. Uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics can tell you that that's the reality. Uh, those who are in the funeral industry know that that's the reality. See, they're in a business that's never going to go broke. Um, they're on a winning formula. What's one thing that people are always going to do? Die. So let's make some money out of it, all right? Um, now, this psalm points us to that reality. I don't know if you thought you'd be coming to, a, uh, to, to an afternoon at church that told you that, that you were going to die, right? But if, if you didn't know that to be true, then that's a good lesson to learn this afternoon. You are. But what does he make of this? Well, one of the things I want us to see as we look at this psalm is just how interested he is in thinking about durations of time. Uh, you can see the language. So verse 4. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. So he's drawing the contrast between God, for whom a thousand years are like just a day, a, a, an evening and a morning. Uh, or, or down in verse 6. In the morning it springs up. Uh, but by evening it's dry and withered, talking about the fact that people come and people go. Uh, or down a little further in, in verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. And then in verses, verses uh, uh, 10, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but a trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. It's interesting, isn't it? Picking up on the nature of, of normal life expectancy. 70 years, perhaps 80 years if you're strong. If you, uh, if, if you go around the world, and I think if you go around the world historically, the, the, the best of life expectancies are pretty much what we've got now in Australia. Uh, I understand, last time I checked, that the average life expectancy for a man is 79 years. Uh, for a woman, it's 85 years. Now, that kind of works out very well for my oldest son, uh, who was 20 when he married a 26-year-old. 
because he looked at this and he worked out, okay, she's going to live six years longer. Um, no, he didn't work that out at all. He fell in love with her and she with him and they decided to get married. But that's the picture that we've got. 79, 85, that's kind of normal, isn't it? Now, you'll get exceptions to that. You'll get people who tragically die much younger. You'll get people who live a lot longer in life. Uh, two of my grandparents, three of my grandparents actually lived into their 90s. One of them died uh, at, at 69, I think it was. Um, that's kind of on the shorter end, that's on the longer end, but it's, it's kind of within the normal. I was speaking in Brisbane last week and uh, it was to a group of retirees and it was interesting just looking at this group that there were way more women than there were men and it kind of made sense because most of them were widowed. And there was one woman who got up to thank me after the talk. She was 80 years of age and uh, I, I learnt after she sat down that she'd brought her mother along to listen to me. Her mother was 102. You see, some people actually make it over the tonne. They get a century. They tip their bat to the crowd, right? Not most of us. Why is it that we're mortal? Why is it that our, our days are numbered? Why is it that we live but a short time? Well, the Bible tells us that it's not simply nature doing its thing. Uh, because we weren't created to die. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we're made to have a relationship with God. We're, we are free in the Garden of Eden to eat from the tree of life. Now, I'm sure that's pictorial language, but the one thing is clear, that is, we were made to live, right? Not to die. Because there's one tree that you're not to eat from, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said if they ate of that tree, then they would surely die. But then the serpent challenges that. The serpent challenges God's goodness and says, no, God just wants to keep you from good stuff. And tempts the woman who, who then uh, takes of the fruit, eats it, and gives some to her, her partner to eat, and he eats of it. And then their eyes are opened and they realize the mistake that they've made and they hide from God. And the truth of God's promise that if they ate of this, that they will die, it begins to take effect. They're, they're cut off from the tree of life. There's an angel that separates them from the tree of life. They're cast out of the garden, out of paradise. And then we read after a few more chapters of the Bible that their days come to an end. And then there's death and there's death and there's death and there's death. And, and you'll read very quickly in the Bible long genealogies. Uh, the book of Numbers is well named because there's so many numbers of, of, of people there. You, you'll read family trees. You'll read different tribes. You'll read that someone was the father of someone who was the father of someone who was the father of someone. There's a common theme in all of those lists. People die. And as you work your way through, right through history, that's what happens. Why? Because the man and the woman chose to turn their back upon God. They failed to trust God's goodness. They failed to be obedient to God who'd given them everything. And so death comes into our world. And we see it here in this psalm. It's not simply a psalm about the brevity of life, about our mortality. It actually describes God's attitude towards those who rebel against him. Look at it there in verse 7. We are consumed by your anger. 
We're terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. You see, death comes about because God is angry with people who've turned their back on him. People who've decided that they can live quite well without God and yet in so doing... They destroy themselves, they destroy relationships, they destroy the good world that God has made. That is the track record of humanity. We make a mess of everything because we turn our back upon God. And so God is righteously, rightfully angry. Our days become numbered. We will die one day. And it says in verse 11, If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. See, we need to, we need to factor in this reality that, that not only are we mortal, not only are we not going to live forever, but, but one day we will stand before God and face judgment. The, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, for it's appointed for people to die once and after that to face judgment. You've probably heard the joke that there are two certainties in life. There's death and there's taxes. Well, that's wrong. There's three. There's death, taxes and judgment. This life, ending in death, is not the end. Let me take a little detour for a moment. I think that the whole idea uh, of euthanasia um, is premised on the fact that death has to be better than suffering in this life. But what if it's not? What if it's not? What if in death, people who don't know God come under the judgment of God for all eternity? That's what people need to hear. They need to know that truth. They need to understand that we need not face an eternity of God's judgment because God has come to rescue people from that. He sent his son Jesus to die for us so that we need not face his judgment. We need not experience his wrath and anger because we can enjoy an eternity with God if we place our trust in Jesus. But friends, here's the reality. Death and judgment. I wonder, have you put them in your calendar? Have you written it in your diary? If it's a certainty in life that you're going to die, wouldn't it be good to plan for it? And what does it mean to plan for death? Well, first and foremost, I think it means to recognise that it's going to happen. Secondly, it means to prepare for it when it does happen. And therefore, you need to understand what that's about. Well, look at Moses' response, right? Having recognised that our lives are in God's hands, that our judgement is in God's hands, he actually calls upon God and he prays to God. And there are three uh, aspects to this that I want to pick up on with you. Verse 12, teach us to number our days. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Verse 17, establish the work of our hands for us. Let's take each of these in turn quickly. Teach us to number our days. What does that mean? 
What does it mean to number your days? It can't mean to know the day you're going to die and then count down to it. Now, there are some people who can do that. People who are in death row, people who are going to be seated on an electric chair, they can probably count down the days, but they might always get it right. There might be a deferment. They might have a heart attack thinking about it. Um, we can't know that. It can't mean to count down the numbers of days. I think if we put it another way, we get the sense of it. That is, it's to make our days count. To, to actually recognise that each day is a day of significance. To, to focus on each day, recognising, first of all, simply the brevity of life. That we don't have all the time in the world to do everything that matters. You know, God forces us to make choices. If, if we just had eternity in front of us, we would never have to make a priority. Because we'd always have time to get to everything. But the fact that there's only 24 hours in every day means you've got to make choices. And the fact that you've got to make choices forces you to think through what matters really matter. So numbering your days, I think it's, a, it's got to do with priority. It's got to do with importance. It's got to do with value and meaning and purpose. Not only are our lives brief and, and contained, but I think there's a sense in which if you're numbering your days, you're not always putting things off. Um, because there'll come a day when you can't put things off any longer. And, and it's the reality, isn't it? When, when you know that, that there's something on the horizon that's important, you, you, you've got to get ready for it. You know, I discovered at university, to my shock really, that there was this thing called exams. And, and when the exams came close, it actually mattered that you'd learnt things because they were going to ask you to write about them for three hours. And as much as I was happy to write poems for the sake of my lectures, it wasn't going to cut it on exam day. Now, when you know that the time is short, it just brings things into focus. And so... Number your days. Don't put off to the very end what you ought to make a priority of now. It's interesting, I was on the phone yesterday morning. A friend uh, from Canberra who uh, had become a Christian in our ministry and then very late in life, her mother had become a Christian, uh, was ringing me with her father from the hospital in Canberra. He's a very elderly man, he's a very sick man. And, and when I got on the phone, I, I was just very conscious of the fact that now's not the time for small talk. Now's not the time to be discussing the weather in Canberra and how much nicer it is where I am. Uh, it wasn't the time to be talking about what he had planned for holidays. It wasn't the time to be chatting about you know, how his gardening is going. No, it was the time to ask him whether he believed that he was right with God. Whether he was at peace with God, whether he was confident that, that God would accept him. And so we talked about those things briefly. He got too cold and, and he had to go back inside. He'd gone out, outside the hospital where we made this call and I encouraged his daughter just to sit down and open up a Christian book and to read through it with him and to take him through a prayer of response if he felt that he was ready to do that. So there's something about the shortness of time. Here is a man who's probably not going to come home from hospital. He's, 
he's probably in his last day or days you don't muck around at that point do you well why do we spend day after day year after year mucking around because none of us know the day or the hour do we it also reminds us of a humility when it comes to making plans after uh, we, when I got sick with cancer we were actually in the process of looking to move to Darwin we thought from Canberra to plant a new church the, all, all of our belongings were in a shipping container somewhere up near Darwin we'd bought a house up there we had a team of people joining us my wife had a job the kids had enrolled in school and we thought we were just about to go we were, we were effectively just camped in Canberra waiting to leave and all of a sudden I find myself in hospital and we're turning the shipping containers back around to come back to Canberra and we're telling people that the plan's off and I remember that, vo- that verse that's in James that says those of you who, who say I'm going to go to this city or that city and, and start a business and make money hey y- you don't know you're just like a mist or a vapour you're, you're here one day and you're gone the next instead you should say if it's God's will we will do this or we will do that and I started to realise just how true that was um, God willing became part of my vocabulary I tended to talk in terms of plans being if God willed that these things would happen because I'd had a taste of just how God's plans can be so different to our plans number your days I started writing a blog actually um, called Macarisms because uh, my name was Maca and it sounded like a good thing to say but it actually comes from the Greek word makarios meaning blessing or to be a blessing to someone um, and I had a bit of a play on words but the subtitle of the blog was learning to number my days as I started to think through that but you know what that was seven and a half years ago and I realized as I look back over the last couple of years I started to become a bit more casual about that I I started to think hey I'm cancer free I'm probably going to be around for quite a lot longer yet I don't know and nor do you so number our days Lord teach us to number our days but also notice in verse 14 satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we've seen trouble they're they're a delightful set of verses these two I think aren't they Um, let, let me just show you something of the contrast make us glad for this miserable life that you've given us that's kind of what he's saying isn't it because it's honest life is full of difficulties and struggles and trials but hey God make us glad in the midst of these things how can you do that how can you be glad how can you be joyful how can you appreciate how can you be satisfied by God when your life is really hard well look back at verse 14 satisfies in the morning with your unfailing love where do you see the unfailing love of God I'll tell you the danger the danger is that we we look to work out whether God loves us based on whether things are going well in our life 
or whether they're not going well in our life. Actually, you see a modern version of this with with Facebook and Instagram. Um, Beautiful photo, someone's on the beach, someone's on a boat, someone's doing wonderful holiday things, hashtag blessed. Is that really where blessing is? What about the person who's got a nasogastric tube in, who's lying in a hospital tag, hashtag blessed? It, it, it sounds sarcastic, doesn't it? It sounds ironic. But no, it may well be that person who knows the unfailing love of God. Because where is the unfailing love of God to be seen? It's not in the circumstances. If it's in the circumstances, you'll be like the child with a little flower who's pulling off the petals. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You'll be tossed around depending on whether you're having a good day or a bad day. Hey, God's been faithful today. I've got an HD on my assignment. Does that mean that God failed you when you got a fail on your assignment? No, I failed my assignment. Hashtag blessed because God has shown me what happens when I'm lazy. You see, we, we, we need to rethink where the blessing of God is to be seen. We need to realise that it's not in our circumstances that we'll find satisfaction. God doesn't say, friends, earn as much money as you can and put it in a secure investment account that you might find satisfaction in your retirement. God doesn't say, look for the perfect match that you might be... Uh, in love, get married, have a perfect marriage and family that you might find satisfaction. No, God says love is demonstrated in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to see the unfailing love of God, look to Jesus on the cross. And no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what your circumstances, that doesn't change. That is a, a beacon, day in, day out, year in, year out, that God loves you. But notice he says, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. I think, Pete, we were talking after lunch and you were talking about God's daily mercies. And here they are. It's, it, it's not, God satisfy me so I'll be forever satisfied. I think God knows that we need new morning mercies, that we need to look again each day at where the love of God is seen. So prayer, teach me to number my days. Prayer, satisfy me daily in the morning with your unfailing love that I might live in the light of the gospel every day. And then down in verse 17, prayer establish the work of our hands for us yes establish the work of our hands what does that mean for God to establish the work of our hands well I think we've got to read it in the light of verse 16 and 17 so if you go back in verse 16 it says may your deeds God's deeds God's works be shown to your servants your splendor to their children may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us then he says Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. 
See, if we just had the last sentence, we might be tempted to think, okay, I bought a business. I want it to succeed. Lord, establish my business. Make it go from a, from a, a startup to a multi-billion dollar business. Make me the next Zuckerberg, Jobs, uh, Gates, Buffett. Make me famous, make me wealthy, make me powerful, make me influential. We could be tempted to make this say whatever we want it to say. And yet we ought to learn enough from this psalm to know that would be an abuse of the verse. Now, first of all, he prays that God's deeds might be shown, that his splendor might be made known. And it's in the context of that that he asks God to establish the work of our hands. You see, there's a perspective on, on our work, on our life, that is shown to be fragile, easily destroyed, so that it comes to nothing and is therefore meaningless. How many of you have read the book of Ecclesiastes? You know the refrain, don't you? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. In the King James Version, it says, Vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Everything is in vain. Let me read to you from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. It's, it's not quite at, at the end of, of 1 Corinthians, but it's, it's at the end of this chapter, chapter 15. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Now, if you read that against the background of Ecclesiastes, see, in Ecclesiastes, it just points out how vain, how meaningless work can be. You know, you get the idea of, Somebody builds a great building, right? A masterpiece in a city. And then in the Second World War, bombs get dropped on it and it's all gone. You think, what did they live their life for? This building that's now rubble. Or, and how many times do you see this one? Ecclesiastes picks up on the picture of, of a person that spends their whole life accumulating wealth, developing their business, only to pass it on to their children and their children don't care about it. And they blow it quickly. Now, what is it that makes work and work in life meaningless is that death can destroy everything that you've been on about. So what is it that will mean work and life are not meaningless? Well, that it extends beyond death. That even death cannot destroy it. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter of the Bible that talks all about getting beyond death about resurrection and so when he says at the end of this chapter the whole chapter has been about resurrection when he says to give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain it's got to be seen in the light of the resurrection it's not meaningless because the work of the Lord is something which will endure through death through the judgment into eternity and I take it in the context of what he's talking about here. The labour in the Lord has to do with people's lives being transformed forever. And so we're encouraged 
to pray that God will establish the work of our hands that is in keeping with the work of his hands. What is he doing? And how can we be a part of that? So friends, my hope is that as we look at Psalm 90, we're given a a fresh perspective on reality. For me, I I was something of a slow learner. I, I needed to learn some things the hard way. And I thought that I'd been diagnosed with a terminal illness, but a few months into that, I realized that had always been the case. Nothing new had happened. I had what you've got. That is a short life that unless we turn to Jesus, will be brought under the judgment of God for all eternity. That's what existence is. We can't escape it. And so many of the people in our world live to try. They're searching for satisfaction. They're searching for happiness. They're searching for purpose in all the wrong places. In places that will not satisfy, will not give meaning, will not endure. Friends, Let's pray that God will teach us to number our days, that we might have hearts of wisdom, that we'll live genuinely wisely because we live his way. Let's pray that God will satisfy us in the morning with his unfailing love seen in Jesus, that we might live each day in the light of the gospel in gratitude. And let's pray that God will establish what what we do with our lives, that it will be purposeful, that it will count that it will endure for eternity. How about we pray now? Our loving Father, we we thank you for this reminder, for the reminder that uh, for you, you are everlasting to everlasting, but for us, we are dust to dust. May we live not for this life, but be stewards of the time that you give us for the life to come, for your glory and others' good. Please, may we number our days, may we gain hearts of wisdom. Please help us to live lives that count for all eternity and satisfy us, we pray, in in the morning, each new day with your unfailing love seen in Jesus that we might sing for joy and be glad. And Father, please establish the work of our hands. Please make your work work through our work to work for eternity. Amen.